Okay, in this little passage we just looked at, we saw Jesus cursing a fig tree and overturning tables. Now, these are abnormal behaviors by Jesus. You know, when we consider the fig tree, we're perplexed. Jesus did not customarily use his miraculous power in destructive ways. You know, we know that Jesus used his power to bring life. You know, he loved to heal and feed and deliver and even resurrect people back to life. He was about giving life with his power, not destroying. And I think when we imagine, you know, really imagine what it was like in the temple with tables and chairs clanging to the ground while Jesus halted all the travel through the court of the Gentiles. I think we're also a little bit concerned. You know, Jesus often rebuked the religionists of his day, but not like this, not with this kind of force and anger. And these two events that present Jesus in an abnormal way are connected to the triumphal entry that we looked at last week. That was also an abnormal event in the life of Jesus. A new way of Jesus riding into town on a donkey, attracting attention for himself. All of this was brand new behavior. Now, we wanna know, why did Jesus behave this way? Why the week before his death did he start acting like this? And the key to that question is actually found in the last verse of our text from last week. If you look in your Bibles with me, it says in Mark 11, verse 11, that Jesus went into Jerusalem and looked around at everything. Remember last week, Jesus rode into the city and the people shouted, Hosanna. They wanted salvation right now. That's what Hosanna means, save now. They wanted the kingdom of David. They wanted the glory and the victory and the freedom for the nation of Israel. And Jesus rode straight for that temple complex of the court of the Gentiles, not the actual temple, but a huge 34-acre patio right outside of the temple of God. It was as far as the Gentiles could go, and what Jesus saw was that they had turned that place that was meant for the worship of God by the nations into a place of commerce. And that's what Jesus saw the day before. He went in and he looked around and saw everything the day before. That's the key to our whole passage. Jesus came to Jerusalem as the Christ King, as Israel's promised Messiah, and went straight for the religious heart of Israel. And there he looked around and saw everything that they were doing. And of course, as we saw in the passage, as we read it together, everything that Jesus saw there grated on his senses. He did not like what he saw. So he went back to Bethany, spent the night, and returned the next day in an act of premeditated and righteous anger. He didn't like everything that he'd seen the day before. Instead of assisting worshipers in their pursuit of God, the religious leaders oversaw an elaborate scheme designed for monetary gain. Instead of helping foreign worshipers, the nations, exchange their money for accepted temple shekels, the money changers gouged them with high surcharges. 
Instead of providing an easy way for the poor to worship God, the pigeon salesmen, those were supposed to be the sacrifices for the poor people in Israel, the pigeons, they were charging premium prices for pre-approved sacrificial animals. And instead of prayer and worship in that 34-acre court, the people were using it as a shortcut to pass from one side of Jerusalem to the other. And all of this infuriated Jesus. And it was right for Jesus to be furious about what he saw because this was his house. That's why he said, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations, quoting from Isaiah 56, but you have made it a den of robbers, quoting from Jeremiah 7, verse 11. Like I said, Jesus' anger here is righteous and good. He should have been angry at what he saw. The God of Israel has arrived as the Son of Man. The Messiah Christ has come, and his people were less than prepared. Their worship was broken, and rather than help the nations come to God, they had actually hindered the nations from God. Now, with this temple episode in mind, we should easily understand what happened with the fig tree right before and after the temple complex episode. You know, some people forget that the fig tree doesn't have a soul and that a far worse curse was placed on all of creation as a result of sin than just what Jesus did on this particular day. And because they forget those things, they blame Jesus. They think that Jesus is acting like a petulant child when he rebukes this fig tree, angry because there's no food and he really wants to eat. But Jesus isn't hangry, he's holy. (laughs) He used the fig tree as an illustration. This is a living, or should I say dead, parable. Jesus approached the fig tree with all of its leaves, and he was looking for fruit. Mark tells us that it wasn't the season for full, ripe, legitimate figs, but it had the the look of fruitfulness, the, the, the appearance from afar that it was fruitful. Now, some people say that in that region, the fig trees actually have a pre fruit fruit, something that's edible, doesn't taste all that good, but can give energy and sustenance. And maybe Jesus was looking for something like that. But either way, with these leaves in full bloom, this fig tree looked like it should have produced something special. But when Jesus discovered that it had no fruit, even though it looked like it might have fruit, he rebuked the fig tree. And the next day, when Peter saw that same fig tree withered from the roots Peter was amazed, and Jesus, you know, his rebuke, it had cursed this fig tree. Now, it's here that we can understand the fig tree as a living parable. Israel had all the outward manifestations of fruit unto God. Like the fig tree, Israel at that time looked fruitful. They had a temple, they had worship, They had the Passover, but the nations had not heard about God. The nations were not coming to the temple for prayer. The house of God was not one of prayer, but of commerce. They had not been fruitful. Jesus looked around that temple complex just like he looked around at that fig tree, and Jesus found in neither any fruit. And for both, his rebuke 
was stern. Now some wonder if Jesus was permanently cursing Israel through the parable of the fig tree. You know, was Jesus kind of ending his program for the people of Israel right here? And when he cursed the fig tree, it's his way of cursing Israel and saying, I'm done, you know, with you. Did he end Israel's potential fruitfulness forever at this point? And my answer to that is, I think not. I don't think that's what Jesus was doing. Consider the words of the Apostle Paul. I'll run through them with you. You can watch them on the screen. Romans 11, verse 12, Paul said, Now if their trespass, Israel's trespass for rejecting their Messiah, means riches for the world, in other words, we got salvation because they rejected Christ, if their failure means riches for the nations or for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? So Paul is hinting at a moment where Israel will have a full inclusion again in God's kingdom plan. In other words, the whole world got the gospel partly because Israel rejected her Messiah. If that's the awesome gift the world got when they rejected their Messiah, what will the awesome gift be when they accept their Messiah? Paul elaborated on this idea, though, also later in Romans 11, verse 15. He said, for if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead. In other words, if we got reconciliation with God after Israel rejected Jesus, then what we must get when they accept Jesus is the final and great resurrection of all things. And Paul seems to think that a future day of deliverance will come for Israel. Listen to this from Romans 11, verse 25 and following. He says, a partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. How can this be? Well, part of the reason that this must be is because Paul said in Romans 11, 29, for the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. In other words, God started a plan with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and he will complete the plan that he has begun. Like Pastor Riley shared a couple weeks ago, God starts good projects, and he finishes good projects as well. Okay, but with all of that said, Jesus' rebuke of the fig tree does seem to have been symbolic for a long season of fruitfulness for Israel, especially in their temple. I don't know if you know this, but after Jesus ascended and the church got its start, this temple finished a long refurbishing project in 66 AD and then was subsequently destroyed by the Romans in 70 AD. And they've not worshiped in that temple ever since that time. It seems that Jesus' rebuke of what happened there in that temple was finalized there in 70 AD. Okay, that's a lot of background. That's a lot of explanation. I just kind of told you what was happening there. But what I'd like to do now is give you four applications from this passage. I want to apply this passage to our lives today. This wasn't only an ancient word for an ancient religion. It's a word for God's people in the here and now. And here's the first thing I want you to know, okay? Number one, adopt 
a temple theology. Number one, adopt a temple theology. Okay, all my applications today are built on the first application right here. We must first adopt a temple theology. Let me explain what I mean by that. Okay, throughout the Bible, God dwelt in various temples. Uh, once Israel was established as his people, you know, after the Exodus and the law was given through Moses, God dwelt in a tabernacle that was temporary and then eventually in a permanent temple. That's where Jesus was at in this story. Both of those temples or tabernacles were earthly representatives of God's heavenly throne room. Now before Israel's temple, there was a temple in the Garden of Eden when God created uh, the, the cosmos. He created the Garden of Eden and put mankind in it to dwell it and, uh, and dwell in it and to keep it and attend it. And God met with man in that place. It was his earthly abode, a dwelling place, a space for mankind to interact with God. Now, of course, we know that sin destroyed that garden temple. And Israel's temple has now expired. Today, though, we have the temple of the church. And when I say that, I'm not talking about a building. I'm talking about God's people. We, as his people, are his temple. First of all, we're his temple as we collect or gather together. Secondly, we're his temple individually as individual believers. In 1 Corinthians 3.16, Paul said, do you not know that you are God's temple? When he said that, he was talking to the whole church in Corinth. You are God's temple. God is dwelling in your midst. And in 1 Corinthians 6.19, he said, don't you know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you? There he was talking to individual believers. You or me, covered by the blood of Jesus, we are individually the temple of God. And we have to embrace this temple theology about ourselves. As individuals and collectively as a church, we are the new temple of God. He dwells in us and he dwells with us. And just as Jesus came to that old temple looking for signs of life and fruitfulness, he comes to us today looking for the same. He wants to see life, vitality, prayer, and fruitfulness unto God. You know, when Jesus came to that fig tree, he wanted fruit, but unfortunately, all he found was leaves. He came to the temple and he wanted fruit, but all he found was religious activity that had nothing to do with God. There was no heart devotion. There was no worship. They were busy with a lot of things, but none of them had anything to do with God himself. And most of what they were doing actually contradicted God's kingdom and priorities. You see, Jesus is not looking for spiritual busyness, but lives of true devotion to him. And when Jesus came into the temple, he wanted to find people giving to God and giving to their fellow man. He wanted worshipers to pour out their hearts and sacrifices to God. And he wanted the poor, the traveler, and all nations to find a warm, welcome and help in their worship. Instead, Jesus found takers, not givers, but takers. Rather than give, they took from God and they took from their fellow man. 
And Jesus is not looking for us to live as takers, but as givers. And when Jesus came to the temple, he wanted to find God's people doing all they could to become a house of prayer for all nations. He wanted them to reach out to the highways and byways, welcoming every nationality and ethnicity into his holy house. Instead, Jesus found ethnocentric nationalism, a wall of hostility between the Jew and the Gentile. Rather than welcome the nations, the the Judaizers had ostracized the nations. Jesus is not looking for us to behave with prejudicial exclusivity, but with gospel-saturated inclusivity. He doesn't want us to focus on the self, but on others. All right, when Jesus came to the temple, he wanted to see a space dedicated to solemn worship and joyous praise. Now, you think about it, the court of the Gentiles, it was supposed to be like this place where the Gentiles would come, the nations would come, and they'd be thinking about God. I can't wait to worship God. This might be as far as I can go. The children of Abraham get to go a little further, but I get to know their God. I get to worship their God. But rather than a silent space devoted to prayer, Jesus found chaos. He found hustle. He found people taking advantage of others. He found a frenetic pace. Jesus is not looking for that. He's not looking for us to hustle our way through life but he wants us to pray our way through life. He wants us to have rhythm and pacing, worship and prayer built into the fabric of who we are. Man, we've got to adopt a temple theology about ourselves. We are his temple. All right, number two though, we have to have faith in God. Have faith in God. You know, when Jesus and his disciples, we saw it there, they returned to Jerusalem. They got there the next day and Peter, he spied out that fig tree, uh, withered from the roots. And I think he thought he was brilliant when he noticed it and said, Rabbi, look what you did. He, he pointed it out to Jesus. Now, the interesting thing is that Jesus actually didn't spend any time uh, explaining the cursing of the fig tree. I think that was kind of like a lesson that these guys were going to figure out later on. Oh, Jesus was doing something that was a parable about the people of Israel and our worship in the temple. Later, they connected the two events. But Jesus did take the opportunity to teach his guys something really important. And he started his teaching in verse 22 by saying, have faith in God, have faith in God. You see, the tree was an example. It had no fruit. Now it's withered from the root. Israel had no fruit. And that's because their root had already withered. They had disconnected themselves from God. They were far from him, and a disconnection from God always leads to fruitlessness in our lives. You see, we have to remember, we're spiritual beings. Our bodies and our minds, they are important. They are valuable. And if you're saved, they belong to Christ and are to be used for his glory. Uh, But the reality is that you, if you're covered by the blood of Jesus, are now made spiritually alive. You can now walk by faith. You can have a vital and real relationship with God. And when you do, what happens is you become properly aligned 
to and with God. And when you are properly aligned with him, good fruit inevitably flows from your life. You don't even have to work at it or try to produce it. It comes because you are properly aligned to him. It grows out of you because you have faith in him. You are walking with him. And part of having faith in God is rejecting showy forms of Christianity. You know, it's one thing to act as if you're in the faith or walking by faith, and it's another entirely to have faith in God. You know, trust God with your desires rather than pursue your every impulse. Trust God with your finances rather than hoard and endlessly fret about the future. Trust God with your future rather than manipulate and twist it to your liking. That's what Jesus is saying. Have faith in God. But so often, it's easier to pursue a life that is leafy without fruit than the life of faith that produces fruit. You know, we can slip into the outward show of religiosity without the true inner life of prayer. So we have to make sure that we don't settle for outward religion. We have to yearn for more, and we have to reject showy forms of Christianity. And as you do, I would encourage you to take care of your spiritual roots. And as I said, proper alignment with God will lead to fruit. But often, it's the pursuit of God that most easily in our busy lives falls by the wayside. We neglect our roots. Schedules fill up, screens distract us, entertainment beckons us. You know, I, I hardly ever hear my kids say the words, I'm bored. I felt like previous generations said that all the time, but it's like impossible to be bored in this modern time. But all this distraction can be a weapon in our enemy's hands. He wants to keep us from prayer. He wants to keep us from the word, from service, and from fellowship. He'll do anything he can to fill up your life with decent things as long as he can keep you from the best things, the things that cultivate your spiritual roots, make you strong, and lead to fruit. So I'd encourage you, church, don't give in. You know, people talk a lot these days about self-care. It's almost become a punchline. It's talked about so much. But I'd encourage you to practice root care. You know, the spiritual disciplines, things like church engagement, Bible study, prayer, fasting, fellowship, solitude, service, sacrifice, generosity, these are all important for developing your inner person. The Spirit of Christ takes those actions and he works powerfully within. You've got to take care of your spiritual roots. All right, number three, I'd say it this way. Observe the fruitful disciple. Number three, observe the fruitful disciple. You know, think about this person that Jesus describes here in our passage. You know, he didn't stop with what he said to Peter. You know, he said, have faith in God. But he went on and explained more. He described what I think is the most dynamic prayer life ever. Mountain moving, uh, whatever it asks, it receives. It believes from God kind of prayer. It forgives because it's been forgiven. It's an amazing prayer life that Jesus described. I'm sure you're intimidated by it and even had questions about it as we read it at the beginning of the teaching. 
You know, it's shocking almost to see Jesus describe this kind of prayer life. And of course, over time, many have misunderstood Jesus' words. You know, one false conclusion that people come to is to think that if we just believe enough, if we mentally envision, you know, something that we want enough, it will become ours. Jesus rejects that kind of nonsense. That's not at all what his people are about. The idea of speaking your dreams into existence is a joke uh, when compared to Scripture, the truth of the Bible. Another false conclusion is to think of Jesus' words like a blank check, like a way to get whatever we want, uh, to fill in the blank, a way to pursue our dreams. Uh, The reason that neither of those views is accurate when considering Jesus describing this dynamic prayer life is because it forgets who Jesus was talking to when he said those words. He was talking to disciples that he just told to have faith in God. Their entire lives are about to be focused in the direction of his kingdom. And when their hearts were pure and squarely aimed at God's glory, Those men could pray with absolute power and authority. These guys never understood Jesus' words about the dynamic prayer life as a means towards wealth or power or status or ease. If anything, they understood Jesus' description of the dynamic prayer life as a way to run into the burning building of humanity. They understood it as a way to have the power of God joining them on the mission of God. So when we read Jesus' description of this dynamic prayer life, we're merely reading his description of a hyper-fruitful disciple. The fruitful disciple, according to Jesus, moves mountains. Look at it again with me in verse 23 and 24. He said, truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. Now, there's really no benefit or point to casting a literal mountain into the literal sea. But what Jesus is highlighting is that there are mountain-like issues that hinder God's kingdom. And every person has come up against mountain-like sins. Every parent has encountered mountain-like obstacles. Every servant of Christ has dealt with mountain-sized limitations within. And for all of them, the fruitful disciple goes to God in confident prayer. They bring God the mountain, and they plead for his aid. And the cross of Christ convinces them that there is nothing good and right for them that God would withhold from them since he did not withhold his only begotten son. But this fruitful disciple not only moves mountains, they forgive because they've been forgiven. Look at what Jesus said in verse 25 and 26. He said, whenever you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone so that your father also who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. But if you do not forgive, neither will your father who is in heaven forgive your trespasses. This means that you cannot possibly have a dynamic life of prayer with a heart that is bound up by bitterness. You might have to go through the exercise of forgiveness nearly every single time you start out praying to God. I've been there before. Every single moment, Father, oh wait, first, 
let me forgive, and now let's get into prayer. But you gotta do it. And there's a doctrinal reason to forgive. You were forgiven. If you're covered by the blood of Jesus, you've been forgiven everything, so who are you not to extend forgiveness to others? But Jesus mentioned a practical reason for, for, for forgiving others as well. When we withhold forgiveness from others, we do not experience, practically speaking, the forgiveness of God. We might have it positionally, but we might not experience it emotionally if we withhold it from others. I pray that we could all become more like this fruitful disciple with this dynamic prayer life that Jesus described. You know, I hope this walk of faith is a life that you want to pursue. And I pray that we might in our church have men who desire fruitfulness and impact to come from their lives. You know, Jesus is looking for fruit from your life, men. Unlike the temple leaders, posture yourself, not for the self, but for others. Self-interests and hobbies that are consuming you and taking you away from your responsibilities, they gotta go. Cut them off, get rid of boyishness, and live as a man who moves mountains for your people. Let's have women in our church who refuse to neglect their spiritual roots. Our society pays a lot of attention to what a woman is externally, but Jesus sees the hidden person of the heart. He doesn't want you so distracted and so busy and so scattered that you have no time for him. You know, you don't need to fast for five days or have a three-hour quiet time, but don't neglect your spiritual person. And let's be citizens who love our nation yet hold the kingdom value of evangelism and gospel hope. As our society trends towards intolerance of Christianity, embrace the body of Christ and the God who saved us and reaches into all nations. With open arms, let's love God together with others who have been washed by the blood of Jesus. And let's be a church that refuses to embrace or congratulate churchiness in all its forms. We don't need leaves without fruit. We don't wanna look pretty while adding nothing to our community. Instead, let's seek God and let's watch him use us to produce the fruit of mountain-moving, evangelistic, faith-filled, constantly forgiving fruit. I told you I had four applications. And the fourth is this. It's so simple and short. Let Jesus cleanse you. He went into that temple and he cleansed it, stopped everything that was wrong so that he could set things aright. And sometimes we're off and we need Jesus to cleanse us.